0: Let's take out our Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. John 8, starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my father. And you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Since the reading of God's holy and inspired word, please be seated.
1: Our text this morning is another glorious testimony to the identity of Jesus the Christ. We come now to the final section of dialogue that began way back in verse twelve, where Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. And so we are still at the Feast of Tabernacles. And as we've seen, tensions have been mounting. Tensions have been building. uh, As Jesus continues to say things that are extremely polarizing. The end of this discussion, in fact, has the Jews so angry that they picked up stones to stone him on the spot, proving further that they were on the wrong side of history. Now my hope and prayer for this sermon is that you would that you who hear would not respond like the Jews did, but would respond in humility, awe, reverence, and faith. Let us commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the blessing of being gathered together as your people. And we thank you for the glorious testimony in this text to the true identity of Jesus. Lord, be pleased to bless the proclamation of your word. May all who hear be awestruck at such a glorious Savior. May we, your people, grow in love and appreciation for our Savior. May we be motivated as we move into our work week to live in a way that would truly glorify Christ, that would truly adorn the doctrine we proclaim, and truly show you to be a treasure worth losing everything in order to gain. May sinners be convicted and brought to faith. May the faith of your people be strengthened. And may you be glorified in it all. In the omnipotent name of Christ we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them and keep them open to the text. John chapter 8, verse 48. Uh, Our usual practice is to take a text of scripture and preach through it verse by verse, point by point. Jesus here had just challenged the lineage of the Jews in the previous section. The Jews believed themselves to be sons of Abraham. But as Jesus explains, if they were the children of Abraham in the way that matters, they would be doing the things that Abraham did. That is, responding in faith to God. They, in contrast, are not doing the things Abraham did. But they, in fact, are seeking to kill God's only son. That is not what Abraham did. That is not what Abraham would be doing had he been there in that moment. And so we see they are children, rather, not of Abraham, but of their father, the devil. And the reason they do not believe, Jesus has said, is because they are not of God. And so now we get the response from the Jews. Look with me in the text of verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now the accusation here that Jesus is a Samaritan likely harkens back again to this question of lineage. Remember the Samaritans were a people group that had formed as a result of the intermarriage between the northern tribes of Israel and all the pagans that had been shipped to that region by the king of Assyria. You can read about this history in 2 Kings chapter 17. Now while they were eventually taught the law of God, Uh, to avert the plague of lions that had been killing the people. Uh, They were taught the law of God, yet they did not fully abandon the paganism of the other nations. And so their religion in Samaria became a mixture of paganism and worship of Yahweh, a religious syncretism. And so to the people of Judah, returning to Jerusalem after their time in exile, the Samaritans were seen both as political rebels and also as racial half breeds whose religion had been tainted by various unacceptable elements and so the jews calling jesus a samaritan is their attempt to fire back right if jesus is calling their lineage or their connection to abraham into question is he now siding with the despised samaritans in their disputes with the jews we see them fire back with this uh, insult you are a samaritan and have a devil And here we have another tragic demonstration of how badly mistaken they were. But one thing that this and the rest of this passage does very well is to demonstrate the truth that Christ's claims are truly polarizing. That is, they force you to an extreme. Notice again, Christ cannot be simply a good moral teacher and make the kinds of claims that he did. Either he truly was who he said he was, or else he is not someone to be respected at all. He does not leave any comfortable middle ground for fence sitters. The Jews here have heard his claims and they have concluded that he must be a devil. And in so doing, They have confirmed what he said, that they, in fact, were children of the devil. Consider, they saw God's only son. They saw God the Son in human form, and they concluded, You are of Satan. You have a devil. We are going to oppose and condemn you, God the Son. Verse 49 Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. And you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus refutes their charge and says, No, he is not demon possessed. And the very thought of Jesus being demon possessed is laughable if you consider the way in which the demons trembled when they encountered Jesus throughout the Gospels. No, it is not demon possession, nor is it siding with the Samaritans in this little dispute, nor is it self-aggrandizement. Christ is not seeking to exalt himself or seek his own glory. None of that is what is causing him to act as he does and say what he says. Rather, once again, it is his commitment to honor his father. And here, I think, is a cautionary tale for us. The Jews at this point had become hard Notice how self-assured they were, right? So self-assured that when they were confronted by God through his son, rather than being willing to self-examine, rather than search the scriptures, they thought it was more plausible that Jesus is demon-possessed than that they could possibly be wrong. Their response to Jesus shows a remarkable, lack of humility. Christ spoke the very words the Father gave him to say, and the Jews condemned him as having a demon, being demonic. Now what does the truly godly person do when faced with the word of God as the Jews were here? The godly person does not dismiss it. The godly person does not scoff at it. The godly person is willing to self-examine when confronted with Scripture. The godly person knows their own hearts. They know the reality of struggling against indwelling sin. They have come to see and understand the deceitfulness of sin. They are aware of how their own sinful flesh is prone to wander They are aware of how easily sin can sneak in and blind them. And so the godly person is always willing to self-examine in humility. To test their lives against scripture. For the godly person is driven not by pride, not by arrogance, not by self-exaltation, but by a desire to please God. And this desire to please God makes them want to find out if there is any area in their lives in which they are living in sin or have been living in ignorance or have been oblivious to God's will. A godly person is marked by humility and a desire to align their lives with God's will in every way. So if a brother comes to you and challenges you on something in your life, be willing to receive it. Be willing to self-examine. Do not respond as the Jews do in this passage. If you dare question me, you must have a demon. But instead, respond with the humility befitting someone who knows that they are not yet who they ought to be. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. There is one, Christ says, who is seeking to see Christ glorify, and he is the judge. He is the standard. Now, whatever the Jews may have thought of Christ, we see that God the Father was seeking Christ's glory, desiring to see him exalted. And God's opinion is not mere opinion, for God is the judge. God is the standard. And so if you ever find yourself disagreeing with God, this is a bad place to be. For in the end, it will not be him who has to give an account to you. It will be you who has to give an account to him. You are not the standard. What you like and dislike, what jives with your own personal sense of right and wrong, they are not what will matter in the end. For you are not the judge. God is the judge. His judgments are true. His judgments are just. And so you will have to give an account to him. What he loves is that which is truly lovely. What he hates is that which is truly despicable. That which he exalts is truly worthy of exaltation. And see in this text, he is seeking to exalt his son. Do not dishonor he whom the judge is seeking to honor. And so let your life agree with God's goals and intentions. Seek what he seeks to glorify his son. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, perhaps prompted by this mention again of the judge, Jesus again returns to his mission. Christ's exaltation is good news for us, right? Christ being exalted is good news for us. For as we've seen in sermons past, the way in which Christ is exalted will be through the cross, through his death and resurrection. His being glorified by the Father is intimately linked To the accomplishment of his mission to purchase salvation for his people as he says if anyone keeps my word if anyone believes in it cleaves to it abides in it obeys and lives by it he will never see death jesus has the words of eternal life john 6 68 so what does this all mean to keep christ's word This is faith in Jesus, receiving and resting in him alone for salvation, as he has offered to us in the gospel. It is to believe that he is who he said he was, to believe that he died on the cross for sins and rose again, to believe the promise that all who trust in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. It is to receive him for who he truly is, Lord God and Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will never see death. Jesus Christ is the King and over his kingdom, death has no power. Now, I want to address a possible misunderstanding and that is this. Jesus says, those who keep my word will never see death. Now that does not mean that we will not physically die in this life. Right? Many Christians have died and gone to be with the Lord. But rather, as Paul puts it, what we see is that the sting of death has been removed. Right? If we actually place this alongside some of Christ's other statements in John, I think the meaning becomes clear. Remember that Christ has declared that he is the bread of life, and those who come to him shall never hunger. He has offered living water such that those who drink of it will never thirst. Come eat this living bread, you will never hunger. Drink this water, you will never thirst. So here, keep my word, you will never see death. It does not literally mean that we will not ever need to eat again after coming to Christ, or that we will never need to drink water again. Please do remain hydrated. Um, Nor does it mean here that we will never actually die in this life. But rather, we understand that Christ has transformed the Christian's relationship to death. Death has lost its sting. Death for us is now a gateway. Those who die in Christ go to be with him and they shall one day be raised just as Christ was raised. Take comfort in this, brothers and sisters. Death is not the end. We shall not see death. We shall not experience death. As the wicked do. But because Jesus Christ has borne our sin and conquered the grave, those who are united to him shall receive everlasting life. Let's continue on in our text. Verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now this proved it in the minds of the Jews. Now we know you have a demon. For no sane man would claim what you just claimed as their implication. Our father Abraham, the great patriarch, great as he was, did not have mastery over death. Right? He still died. The greatest men we can think of, the prophets, uh, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elisha, all of these men, great as they were, still died. Did not have mastery over death. The blessings they gave were not this great of eternal life to all their hearers. And so by making this claim, Jesus has just placed himself far above the greatest men that they could think of, right? the greatest men who had ever lived. And so his audience concludes, only a demon-possessed man would say something so outlandish. And so they reply with this rhetorical question, are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now it's a similar question to what Jesus was asked by the Samaritan woman. Remember Jesus had offered her living water and she asked, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Are the blessings that you provide even greater than that which we have received from the patriarchs and the prophets? Here now the Jews ask it as a scoffing rhetorical question. Are you greater than Abraham? You think you're greater than the prophets? Who do you think you are? Who do you make yourself out to be? And to the reader of John's gospel, once again, the irony is laid on thick. For we know that the answer to this question is in fact the opposite of what the Jews expect. Right? They ask the question, they assume the answer is no, Christ is not greater than Abraham. The reality, of course, is that Christ is far greater than they could possibly imagine. D.A. Carson comments on this text. The truth of the matter, of course, is that their question completely misses the points that Jesus and this gospel have been making. Jesus does not make himself or exalt himself to be anything. Far from it. He is the most obedient and dependent of men, uniquely submissive to his father. Verse 54, Jesus here again refutes the suggestion. He denies the idea that he has been exalting himself. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you self-praise, self-exaltation, if it were apart from the Father, if it were independent of God the Father, such self-glory would be nothing, would be meaningless. So Jesus says, it is my Father who glorifies me. And here again, the irony of the situation is that the Jews to whom he is speaking would all claim that the Father is their God. And yet we see they do not share his priorities. They have not recognized the character of God the Father perfectly put on display before them in the person of the Son. They are now showing no knowledge at all of the Father's profound commitment to glorify his Son. And so the very fact that the Jews were now opposing the very one whom the Father and Judge was dedicated to exalting, proves again that the Jews did not know God. Here's the principle, and it's one that applies equally for us today, and that is this. You cannot claim to love God while rejecting what he loves. You cannot truthfully call him your God while living at cross-purposes with him.
0: Now, what does it mean for
1: something or someone to be your God? That's a truthful claim. This is my God. Well, that which you make your God is that which you are serving. That which you are worshipping. If you want to know what someone's God truly is, you could ask it this way. At what is their life aiming? Right? What is it that they are sacrificing for? What takes priority in an ultimate sense? What is the, their goal in life? And so we could ask ourselves, are we living in such a way that demonstrates that God is truly our God? Do we honor him as God? Meaning, do we give him the worship, the service, and honor that he deserves as our creator and our redeemer? And the old question is a good one. If you were arrested and brought on trial simply for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in a court of law to convict you on those charges? Would a prosecutor be able to prove that you are a Christian simply by watching a day or a week of your life? If we are to say that God is our God, then we must align our lives with his priorities. We must labor to love what he loves and to hate So brothers and sisters, examine yourselves. Are you cherishing something that God hates? Are you loving sin? Have you become so hardened, deceived, and desensitized that something which is wicked, destructive, putrid, objectively disgusting and vile, has actually become pleasurable to you. If God is your God, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, then you must not take pleasure in that which took Christ to the cross. Christian, if God is your God, you must not love what God is. This is you. Repent. Pray that God would open your eyes, that you would no longer be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Pray that you would be able to see sin as He sees sin vile, destructive, rotten to the core. (coughs) If God is your God, you must hate. the flip side, if God is your God, you must love what he loves. What does God love? God loves his worship. God loves to be praised by his redeemed people. He loves his church. He loves his people. Do you love what God loves? Do you love God's people? Do you love worshiping God? God loves to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control.
0: God loves it
1: when his character is reflected in his people. He loves it when we accurately image him to the world. Think of it. If God were the sun in the sky, then we are like little mirrors Growing in holiness is like polishing that mirror so that we shine brightly and more accurately reflect the glory of God, the light of God to the world. God loves when we reflect his image, his character. God loves humility. God loves to see us pour out our lives for others when we sacrifice ourselves, putting the needs of others before our own. For in all of these things, we are becoming like his Son. And God loves his Son supremely. And so may we as his people grow to be ever more like him. Let's continue on, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now back into this debate with the Jews. Remember again, the Jews had been appealing to their connection with Abraham throughout this discussion. They had been seeking to align themselves with Abraham, claiming some kind of privileged status through this connection. Now Jesus had first challenged this by saying they are not truly the sons of Abraham, the children of Abraham, because they were not doing the things that Abraham did. And so here too, Jesus now claims that Abraham is on his side in this dispute. Right? If this claim is true of Jesus, that Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day, then that completely undermines the argument of the Jews. Right? They claim in connection to Abraham, Jesus says, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, there's been a number of suggestions as to what specifically Jesus meant. Right? Some think this was... Uh, The sacrifice of Isaac, where Isaac asks where the lamb for the sacrifice is. And Abraham uh, says that God himself will provide a lamb. And they've seen in that foreshadowing of Christ, who was the lamb that God provided. Um, Others have suggested that uh, Abraham's laughter when he was told that he would have a son was laughing with joy. And since Isaac was a child of promise and part of the line that would produce the Messiah... Then Abraham's joy at the announcement of Isaac's birth could be seen as his rejoicing in Christ's day. Others suggested that God specially revealed to Abraham what was to come, secrets of the age to come. Or perhaps that Abraham was already in paradise and was presently seeing Jesus in his ministry and rejoicing. Um, Or finally, and I find this to be the strongest argument, that it was a statement about Abraham's joy in the covenant promises of God, specifically that through him, the entire world would be blessed. A promise which Paul tells us is fulfilled in the gospel going out to the nations. Galatians 3, verse 8, Paul writes, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So, catch that. According to Paul, the promise that through Abraham the whole world would be blessed was, in fact, a promise of the coming gospel. Right? That the Gentiles would be saved by grace through faith. And we know that we are blessed through Abraham because it was through Abraham's line that the Messiah would come. Now, whatever his specific meaning here, Jesus identifies the ultimate fulfillment of all Abraham's hopes and joys with Christ's own person and work. So again we see that in the debate between Jesus and these unbelieving Jews, Abraham is on Christ's side. As we've seen previously, Moses is on Christ's side. For Moses wrote of Jesus, John 5:47. The entire Old Testament is on Christ's side. As Jesus said, though the Jews search the scriptures, thinking in them they have eternal life, it is those scriptures that testify about him. John 5, 39. We see as well, God the Father is on Christ's side. For God the Father is seeking to exalt his Son. And God is the judge. So these Jews appealed to Abraham. They thought they were in line with Abraham and the prophets. But Abraham, a true man of faith, looking to the covenant promises of God, rejoiced to see Christ's day. All the true Old Testament faithful, whoever they would have picked, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, all these men, all these who truly knew God, they are on the side of Christ. So we can see, That the Jews were deceived. They were presently opposing Christ, plotting the murder of God the Son, making war against God's chosen one. They were not, therefore, in alignment with Abraham and the prophets. They are instead the unrighteous seed, making war against the seed of the woman. They, in opposing Christ, are on the side of Cain, who murdered righteous Abel. They are on the side of Pharaoh, who enslaved God's people and murdered their baby boys. They are on the side of Balak, who hired Balaam to curse the people of God. They are on the side of Esau, who sought to murder his brother Jacob. They are on the side of the wicked, Sion, Og, Goliath, Sennacherib, Haman, Ahab, and Jezebel, all the wicked who defied God and opposed his people. By opposing Jesus, they proved that they were children of the devil, plotting against the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent. And so a physical connection to Abraham is irrelevant if you do not share the faith of Abraham. Christ is the dividing line. All humanity will be divided between those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam, the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats. Your physical descent will not bring you salvation. You could have the most prestigious pedigree. You could be descended from the most important or godly people in history. And if you reject Christ, none of that will matter. Kids, it does not matter who your parents were does not matter that you came from a christian home if you reject christ if you oppose christ you are a child of the devil and your destination will be the same as his so friends rejoice like abraham in seeing the fulfillment of god's promises in christ For Christ is the fulfillment. It was all pointing to him. Join the prophets and apostles, the saints throughout all time, and join in worshiping Christ. For as we'll see to close, he is worthy and deserving of our worship. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Now, Albert, Albert Barnes comments on this and says they perverted his words. His affirmation was not that he had seen Abraham, but that Abraham had seen his day. The design of Jesus was to show that he was greater than Abraham, John 8, 53. And to do this, he says that Abraham, great as he was, earnestly desired to see his time. Right? Abraham was looking to see Christ's time, acknowledging Abraham's inferiority. To the Messiah. Now the Jews perverted this and affirmed that it was impossible that he and Abraham should have seen each other, close quote. Right? You are not even 50 years old. Abraham died thousands of years ago, and you have seen Abraham. Now, interestingly, notice how Christ responds here. Not only affirming that he is older than Abraham, but by revealing something glorious about his true. Identity as God. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now notice, if Jesus had only wanted to say that he was older than Abraham, he could have said, Before Abraham was, I was. That's not what he says. He says, Before Abraham was, I am. You may remember the Greek phrase here. We've looked at it a number of times. Ego, I mean. Now this is not merely a claim that Jesus existed before Abraham. This is a claim to existence on another whole plane. For Christ declares for himself, not only pre-existence, that he existed before Abraham, but Christ claims self-existence. Doctrine of, the yeah, attribute of a aseity. aseity. An attribute that belongs only to God. As B.B. Warfield puts it, commenting on this text, as the most impressive language possible, he declares, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Where he claims for himself the timeless, present eternity as his mode of existence. Now to say, I am, in this absolute way, again, referencing the divine name used through Isaiah, and referring back to Exodus 3, as God spoke from the burning bush, I am that I am. uh, Christ is uh, claiming eternal self-existence. Abraham was... That is, Abraham was, he first came into being, and then passed away from this world. And in contrast, Christ declares that even before Abraham was, Ego I me, I am. The one who was, and who is, and who is to come. The God who has always existed and always will exist. The one who does not depend on anyone else for his existence, but is self-existent, self sufficient self-sustaining and in this is one of the great factors that separates god from the rest of his creation all right let's let's break this down get this idea what is this aseity well consider you me the jews abraham all of us are creatures right we began to exist right there there was a time when we were not We began to exist, and our existence is entirely dependent upon God. Now kids, have you ever wondered, why is it that your molecules don't just fly apart? right? Why do you continue being you, your molecule holding together? right? Why do you hold together as you are? Ultimately, the biblical answer is because Christ keeps saying your name because Christ keeps saying your name. Scripture reveals to us he is not merely the creator, but he is also the sustainer. Colossians 1, 17, we read it this morning. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, verse 3, speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The creator continues to uphold his creation. He sustains it, upholds it. Every created thing is being actively upheld by our creator. So see, in this way, our existence is truly derivative Right? We do not have self-existence. Our existence is dependent upon God sustaining us. Right? We depend on him for existence. And so the question is then, who or what upholds God? Right? If we and everything in creation are being upheld by him, sustained by him, what sustains, what upholds God? Is there some greater Something greater than, than God that upholds him. No. No, he is self-sustaining, self-upholding, self-existent. He simply is. And so his name is fitting. I am. This is a self-existence. This is what was claimed by Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus, in no uncertain terms, claims the divine attribute of a Sadie for himself, and again identifies himself with the divine name. Now to put that all very simply, Jesus claims to be God. And there are some who try to argue around this and say that's not what Jesus is really saying here. But I think the fact Uh, that the Jews react the way they did shows that they understood the implications of what Jesus said. Let's finish our text. Verse 59, how did the Jews respond? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Having recognized the claim he had just made, but being unwilling to accept its truthfulness, the Jews concluded that Christ must be a blasphemer. And so they picked up stones to stone him. Notice again, Christ does not leave any comfortable middle ground. C.S. Lewis put it so well, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And that is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. But you can't claim to be God and be wrong about that and still be a good teacher, right? He says he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. he did not intend to close quote The Jews understood the implications of what Jesus had said. They knew that he had claimed deity, divinity for himself. They concluded that he must be a liar. And therefore a blaspheming liar worthy of being stoned. My friends, what you decide about Jesus How you respond to his claims and his promises will be the most important thing you ever do, the most important decision you ever make. As we've said, all humanity will be divided along these lines, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ, the sheep and the goats, the children of God and the children of the devil. And so respond in faith to this promise made by our Lord If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Believe that he is who he said he was. Believe that he died on the cross for sins and rose again. And believe the promise that all who trust in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Receive him for who he is, Lord, Savior, and God.